0: This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz.
1: And I'm Alex Littner. This week in North Quad Studios, it's just me and Amanda. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take apart our past few episodes where we've had some really cool guests come in and talk about the film industry. We're going to kind of recap the interviews and pull out kind of what our key insights and takeaways were.
0: We've had a number of really great conversations and and learned a lot. And I think what I wanted to do is take take an episode and pull out really what we saw as the key threads that repeated across the interviews uh, and really, you know, what new knowledge we walked away from about the film industry.
1: So let's begin, because really the biggest takeaway I had was how big the film industry actually is and how many different pieces there are.
0: Right. And it makes sense. And and I think because we're both a little more expert on television, we're able to talk with greater nuance when we talk about television. But really right out of the gate in our interview with Russ Collins, he he made the point that we look at something like the music industry and recognize that there is a really big difference between, let's say, a a big band that opens arenas and a classical musician. And we have the expectation that there's different amounts of money involved. There's different Mm -hmm. measures of success. But what really struck me in thinking about how frequently I'm reading coverage of the film industry in the trades, and there are these big statements about the movie industry and how easy it is to forget that really those accounts typically are only talking about that sector of studio-made, high-budget films.
1: Yeah, they're talking about blockbusters. They're not talking about, like, art house or other smaller pieces of the film industry. Russ really put it perfectly with that music analogy, because... For every Avengers, there's a Moonlight. For every—I guess La La Land is kind of an arthouse <laughs> film. But, like, for every uh, Batman v Superman, there's a, uh, there's a Manchester by the Sea. They're, they don't get held to different standards in the general coverage.
0: The other thing that I think was helpful that came out of some of these conversations was this idea that not only are there different kinds of films in terms of, as you know, an independent or low-budget sector versus the blockbuster— but also this idea that the nature of the theater business itself is different. And I'd never really thought much about the art film sector. I really think there's a connection between public service media, which we usually only see in, in spaces like broadcasting and what the Michigan Theater is doing in terms of having, as such a central part of its mission, not making profit but serving a community.
1: Yeah, the, he called it community-based, mission-driven. Their first goal is to bring these movies to the Ann Arbor community, Keep, maintain this theater that the 1,700-seat movie palace and bring movies and other cultural events to the theater. I, I like the analogy you drew with uh, public media there.
0: Yeah, and I'd never really recognized there being a something, anything public service-ish about U.S. film. In, in other countries, there are subsidies that support the making of film and, and things that don't exist Well, there, here. Are,
1: subs- there are tax credits here. Yeah, I mean, it's, right. it's not quite the same. No, no.
0: But I, I appreciated that added complexity now to my thinking about the film industry but of course as we add complexity it just becomes more and more difficult to sort of sort anything out
1: Uh, especially when we're getting into the new distribution methods because one of the threads that kind of got talked about in all three of our interviews was that question of netflix and amazon and how they distribute movies
0: Right. And we're certainly in a period of change in, in regard to that. And so in some ways, I think what was helpful was Ira pointed out really some key differences between Netflix and Amazon, even though we tend to, to lump them both together in that question of whether or not the different services do put any money toward theatrical distribution. And I feel like that was a great Starting point then for the conversation that we got to with Dan and mm-hmm. some of these questions about you know what makes a film a film and, and not television and, and how important and in what ways is theatrical distribution important.
1: The distinction that was drawn here was Amazon clearly values theatrical distribution. Netflix doesn't. Netflix wants to put the movies up on Netflix. And that's kind of the question that was being weighed here is like, I, I think when Ira brought it up, he was like, who will cave first? Netflix giving movies a bigger theatrical release, or Amazon kind of falling back and not caring as much about the theatrical window.
0: Well, I think there's even a third possibility here as well, which is the Academy begins to rethink some of these distinctions and recognize that maybe theatrical distribution isn't the the be all and end all that it has been. As the Media Business Matters podcast, I I think the question that we have to be paying attention to is is how the awards matter to the portals Mm -hmm. and why they, they do matter and how they matter differently. And so as I was thinking through that, in, in both cases, Amazon and Netflix, what they're trying to do is drive subscription. Right. So what they're doing is something very different than a studio that is basically selling each individual film and trying to find an audience for each individual film. And so in many ways, awards are important and maybe even more important to Netflix and Amazon because it helps bolster that reputation of their library.
1: Right. You know, Netflix and Amazon have both won Oscars. This year, both of them took home awards, but Netflix took home a documentary short award for their film, The White Helmet. Amazon won Best Original Screenplay and Best Actor with Manchester by the Sea, Amazon took home major awards. Netflix, documentary short is a category that you kind of have it that I only really care about to see how I'm doing in my Oscar pool.
0: Right, but these also might be somewhat early days because I think the other thing to keep in mind is as subscriber-funded services... It's actually to their detriment to release them in theaters, to make that content available anywhere other than the service. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the same strategies that we see playing on the television side, where these studios are increasingly owning the series or having a license to them for ten years in the case of their original content, it actually makes sense that they wouldn't want them distributed in theaters because if there's something that there's a lot of discussion about, that people, it would drive people to actually subscribe to the service to see the content.
1: And that's that's understandable, but as long as the system is the way it is, you know, can those things play nicely? I, the Academy has always been a very old-school kind of organization.
0: And I think that's uh, a bit of the piece that did come up with Dan's conversation and, and sort of some of these different traditions about thinking about different media and some of these long-held biases that are still in play about, you know, whether film is more artistic. He kept using the word cinephilia, and I thought that yeah. was a really helpful word, you know, sort
1: of... I used that, too. Like, he oh. talked about kind of the film-going audience as well.
0: Well, and, and and it's not just Netflix and Amazon that is a relevant part of this conversation. You know, in, in these weeks that we've been having these interviews and putting the podcasts up, there's been this ongoing conversation, admittedly a conversation that's been going on now for a few years. I
1: think we've talked about it before. Actually. But it
0: seems like it's actually getting to be a real conversation oh, yeah. at the studios about something like day and date release.
1: Yeah, no, they're currently in negotiations right now as of CinemaCon with the exhibitors to kind of lessen the theatrical window. I think the window they're thinking about shortening it from 45 days to 10 days between when a movie would be released in theaters and when it could appear on on demand, that kind of shortening would be huge, a huge monumental change in how the film industry distributes its movies.
0: It might be and it might not. So the key to this plan is that immediate early home release would be at a much higher price point Mm -hmm. than going to the film. And so I think we can't reasonably predict actually what the audience might do and whether it will actually uh, affect film going negatively. It may Mm -hmm. end up being, as was the case when video rental began, that it actually there's a pent-up audience that either can't get to a theater or it's just too much of a hassle that ends up not seeing films Mm -hmm. that instead begins to see them because of the greater convenience that that kind of a day-and-date release schedule allows.
1: And the price convenience for a family of four, like to pay 50 bucks Mm -hmm. to see a movie at home... That's cheaper than going to the theater.
0: Well, and even just to you know, for to go out with my husband for a mm-hmm. night, you know, when you calculate in the babysitter, very quickly there too. You know, I can watch in my pajamas with the drinks of my choice. <laughs> that, that's that's not a bad proposition. And then the other way that this could be beneficial for the studios is in marketing and pro- promotion costs. And as it is right now the theatrical window is so far removed from the DVD window that you basically have to go out and resell your film and remind the audience that didn't see it in theatrical release that it does want it in one of these mm-hmm. later windows. And so I think there's some savings and opportunity there.
1: So you can say, like, you're in theaters and then you're, we're on demand right now in kind of the same marketing spend rather than having to window it? Absolutely. I think this also kind of brings up a point that Ira brought up. You know, when I we asked him what he thinks wouldn't change about the film industry he said the audience and their appetite for film
0: yeah i think i felt like we learned a lot from from both russ and ira about the audience in different ways and i, mm-hmm. and I really felt like those were perspectives that are often not part of the business conversation right. about the film industry
1: that there is this dedicated audience you know admittedly i'm one of them who will go see a movie in theaters yeah Russ and Ira kind of crashed down some assumptions I had about, like, declining theater attendance and the declining importance of theatrical, you know.
0: Right, and I think those core truths that Ira was talking about as well, of the difficulty of, in his words, getting butts in seats, Mm -hmm. and the way in which, you know, it almost felt like much of film going is unrelated to these issues of what films are even being shown. That There's this cultural practice. Some people, it's an important part, of culture for some people, for others it's not, and mm-hmm. so the way in which that notion of experience of of people who want to go out and see a show, that core drive isn't going to rise and fall significantly related to this year's slate, next year's slate, or or the year whether that.
1: movies available on demand. I mean, go to me, going to the theater is an experience in and of itself. You go, you watch the movie on the big screen. I can't get a screen like that in my home. I just can't. And, you know, watching especially big blockbusters or even something like La La Land, that plays so well, like, on the large screen. The emotional moments hit just that much more. The grand dance numbers, all the color of, of someone in the crowd, those the color dresses, like, it just doesn't hit the same way at home than it does on a big screen.
0: Right, and I think I've always thought about that before as again being, as you know, this really textual feature. You know, sort of like the the big blockbusters. Often you do want to go to the theater because they are so spectacular, but this idea that that there's just this notion of experience that's right. different from that. I'm not going to say completely unrelated to the content, <laughs> but largely, you know, not dissimilar from again. Let's to make a comparison to a different industry what you have with music fandom and and the idea of going to see a live show, the way in which that is or isn't related to whether or not you're buying an album from an artist.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think filmmakers make their movies with theatrical in mind. Like Chris Nolan came out and, you know, after Warner Brothers person said we were in these negotiations, Chris Nolan came out and said, I'm a fan of theatrical. Chris Nolan has always been one of those filmmakers who's behind theatrical. And in Dan's interview, I talked about, going to see get out in the theater and that movie was made for that communal experience it was made to have people shouting at the screen you know to have like that kind of it to have interaction and to have like interplay with the characters and to have cheering that movie would not be the same watching it like alone on my couch it's still a great movie and i think it would still hold up but it's not the same as just that kind of communal watching a movie laughing together cheering together it
0: yeah, I think to that to the, your Chris Nolan point, change is difficult, right? And so, of course, there is going to be hesitance and resistance and, and you know, people who say this is the end of cinema, it's the worst <laughs> thing ever. And I think it's really premature to sort of take those positions before there's any sense of, of what the consequences may mm-hmm. be. But I think, you know, I, another good point that Ira raised was this issue of urgency right? Uh, and the way in which one of the hardest things to create an audience is to create any kind of urgency to get people to go to a film and so obviously you know he said it jokingly this idea that you know the only way you create urgency is to say you know this film one night only then we're going to burn the negatives you're
1: never going to be able to see it again
0: there's no way to create urgency for the film industry and so i think you know what we have to see something like adopting day and date being Mm -hmm. is well the alternative of creating that urgency is to even in more ways, respond to the fact that audiences have a lot of pressure on their time and there are pressure on their availability, and so we need to make our content even more available. Which is really what we've been seeing with the changes in television and oh, the absolutely. transition away from a linear schedule to more and more on-demand or streamed content.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The difference between watching the linear and Netflix, you know, in terms of just selecting your time and your place. And speaking of Netflix... The cornerstone of kind of Dan's interview, which I personally found interesting, is kind of the question of what is a movie, what is a TV show, and...
0: And I've just <laughs> continued to think about it, and I, I can't say I, I end up anywhere with greater clarity. I, I have actually, my greatest fear at this point is that after decades of writing about how television isn't dying, that... It kind of is, but it's not the death that everybody had anticipated. It's a,
1: instead of a death, it's a morphing into something else?
0: Well, yeah, sort of this the, the, idea of the blurring between television and film. The and dreaded
1: 10-hour movie that... There's oh no God. such
0: thing. It, but I hate it <laughs> when showrunners
1: say that. Like, when the Game of Thrones showrunners describe themselves as a 10-hour movie, it's like, no, make a TV show. And I'll address this a little bit in what we're watching, but the best TV shows form whole episodes the episode is one of its one piece of its own instead of you know a melding of just one long story
0: yeah you know, so I've been thinking about you know like what's at stake what gets lost if we do begin to break down that distinction what happens if we do just talk about video in this era um, in which especially digital distribution has have blurred lines and if we you know look at other industries that have similarly, awkward relationships as a result of things that have changed. Like, what is the difference between a newspaper and a magazine in an era of digital distribution, and a blog for that matter, right? And so we can talk, you know, if we want to make somewhat intelligible claims, we could talk about, and we'd still call it print, which some people might feel like, that seems so strange because we're reading it on a screen. You know, there are words. There's the words industry, the sounds industry, and the video industry. And
1: then the things that combine all three. Yeah.
0: So, so now I think I, I really appreciated having Dan to uh, talk through the film practices uh, with with greater depth. But you know, in some ways, I feel like we worked through all of those different ways that these industries have been defined distinctly. Mm-hmm. And in very few cases do those distinctions continue to hold up, but yet, I know it's television, and I know it's a movie, so.
1: I. For and, now. I and I know it's not TV; it's HBO, supposedly. Oh, no, but. that's
0: that's long gone. So.
1: <laughs> we still don't have a complete answer to that question, and I'm not sure we will for a long time. And we look forward to continue to weigh it. You know, as our showrunners keep making those damned movie comments. <laughs> You know, this was a pretty short one because we're kind of summarizing elements that came before. So it's actually now time to move on to the final segment of each and every show. What we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week?
0: I've been watching Feud um, and Girls. And in some ways, actually, Feud fits into this last set of comments pretty well. You know, it's, I guess it's being categorized as a mini-series. Yeah, a limited
1: series. A limited
0: series. And I believe the intention is that it can be reinvented with different
1: Feuds and yes. subsequent seasons. It's uh, like American Crime Story, American Horror Story. Exactly.
0: But, yeah. uh, and But being, it's been created for FX, so a, a linear cable channel. hmm but in many ways, you know, I think there's six episodes, and it too, you know, it's it's tight, it's contained. Someone could call it a six-hour movie. Oh, boy. <laughs> even though it wasn't created for a streaming service. Again, you know, there's so much available uh, on the part of the viewer. Mm-hmm. I've continued my usual practice, and I waited until I had all the episodes, and now I've been watching them consecutively. So yeah, I, I, I can I've watch seen, it in a week.
1: Yeah, I've seen two of Feud, the Feud episodes so far, and I look forward to going back and watching more. It, it, it's fun it's like popcorn-y you know jessica lang and susan sarandon scenery chewing
0: the acting is fantastic and this is a a part of history that as a a media scholar i should know better but um film and stars were not uh, my focus and so in many Mm -hmm. ways it's just been fascinating to be told a story that i really didn't even know much about
1: quite frankly i may have heard the names bet davis and joan crawford uh I don't think I've seen any of their movies, but... Yeah,
0: I, I, now I want to.
1: Yeah, well, I want to watch whatever happened to Baby Jane.
0: Exactly. Uh, and then, of course, concluding its run last night, uh, I've been watching the final season of Girls. Mm-hmm. And I, I have to say, I, I've been reading the coverage, I mean, if there's anything that can be said of Girls, or must be said of Girls, is that it was a show that inspired more television journalistic criticism than I think any other <laughs> show. I, I never really would say I liked the show, sort of, as someone who studies television and gender, I felt I had to watch it, and yeah. I did continue to watch it. And by some of these later seasons, I think I figured out that one of the reasons it had such a, a, a loud arrival on the scene in uh, 2012, 2013, viewers and critics assumed... A different relationship with the characters and i think was actually intended yeah. I, think, I think it was we assumed that it was in this model of you know these are characters you should want to be like and i think by the end it was clear that no uh and these are just <laughs> stories about some characters and you know what makes them interesting is perhaps exactly that you don't ever want to be like them or want your daughter to be like them yeah. or wherever your your general uh, generational identification point is so and i i'm glad to see It wrapping up in a way that, um, it all came together nicely, I think.
1: Okay, yeah, I haven't watched Beyond uh, Season 1 of Girls. It kind of fell victim to the whole time, limited time, too much TV phenomenon. Should I catch up with it? I don't know. It speaks to gender in interesting ways. I'll give it that.
0: What are you watching, Alex?
1: So, I've got a couple things in mind. Uh, the first thing is...
0: Wait, I have to say, before you say much... I am really excited to watch one of the things you're going to talk about, actually both of the things you're going to talk about, and I haven't, so no spoilers. spoilers.
1: Okay, so first thing I'm going to talk about is over the past week and a half, I caught up with season two of The Leftovers, uh, and I watched the season three premiere last night. I guess you watched the Girls Finale last night, I watched season three premiere, The Leftovers. Um, Season two is phenomenal. The way it tells its story with its characters emotionally, it is just, it is a really, I don't know if heartfelt is the right word, but it, it, like, it plays, like, to your emotional core. And, you know, you care about these characters. Those characters are all grieving. They're all trying to kind of make everything okay, and they can't.
0: Well, it's such a fascinating... Reinvention of the series, given mm-hmm. that it was originally based on a book and it based it told it's the book story in the first season. Right. And so to find a way to reboot the series in a way that's you know not as extreme as the, the limited series, but mm-hmm. still still very, the same
1: characters and
0: very authentic and true to you know sort of the core struggle and working through of, of existential crisis yeah. uh, that the series was about to start with.
1: And the, it completely pulls off an episode in its second season called International Assassin. I won't say anything more besides the fact that, that the episode... Uh, oh, you, have you seen,
0: I've it? seen two. I haven't started season three yet.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah, no, International Assassin. That was a episode of TV that I did not expect. It just the way it pulled it off completely straight-faced. I loved it. Um, and I also want to bring up 13 Reasons Why. The show has been kind of getting a, a huge amount of buzz, like, especially around kind of the younger portions of my kind of social media circle. For those of you who don't know, it's a show about... On Netflix. on A show on Netflix about a girl who leaves a series of 13 tapes and kills herself. And a boy named Clay on the list of the people to get the tapes, gets the tapes and starts listening to them and kind of unfolding the story of why she did what she did. And probably the thing that I appreciated the most about it is how unflinching it was. It approached subjects of sexual assault and suicide. And it's not coldness, but it's a realistic, like, this is what happens sort of look. At times, it's hard to watch. It really is. Um, This isn't necessarily a spoiler, because it's in the premise of the show, but in the 13th episode, they show her killing herself they don't flinch they just show this is what happened to her and that i think is a part of the inner tragedy of the show and you know a part of its dna and just how it approached these subjects without giving up without like sugarcoating Mm -hmm. and showing this is what happens to you
0: yeah i saw maureen ryan's review and was really Mm -hmm. intrigued especially sort of given my age and the teen dramas that came about and when they came about. So I'm really interested to take a look at what 13 Reasons is doing and put it in conversation with some of those teen dramas past.
1: And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to AmandaLots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. You can also find us on iTunes and at the Google Play Store by going to play.google.com slash music and searching our name in the little search box that comes up on top. Also, please rate and review us on these sites. It helps us get noticed. Amanda, where can our fine listeners find you on Twitter?
0: At DrTVLotz, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z.
1: And you can find me at Alex Intner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. All right, thank you all so much for listening, and we'll be back soon.